0: Well, today we are finally in Matthew 28, and I won't read the whole text because we're going we're gonna to get into it um, here really quickly, but I'll just read a little bit from Matthew 28, and then we'll jump in. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'll open up our hearts, Father, to see the truth of this text. God, I pray that you will help us, Father, uh, to internalize it, God, not just to keep it as the historical story that it is, but Lord, to actually see how Jesus's resurrection has made a way for our own resurrection. So God, I pray that as we... uh, dive in today. People will be given hope. People will be given peace and joy in knowing that Jesus is the risen King. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Sometimes the hardships and sorrows of life can blindfold us and tempt us to believe that there's no real joy or hope left in the cruel cold darkness. In my own ministry, I myself have sometimes felt the blindfolding coming on of grief and sadness. And as many of you know, sorrow can leave us careening for answers. We ask questions and we hope to find answers, but no matter where we turn, it seems like there are just more questions than we have answers. Where is hope when death visits a family? Where is joy when a soon-to-be widow says her final goodbye to her unresponsive husband? Where is peace when the grass begins to grow on the grave? Or when the tomb starts to crack with age? Where can rest and satisfaction be found as we watch the world split in half and tear apart? Now, I, I know that when we look at the tombstones when we look only to the graves, when we look only to the fractured world, we won't find any hope or joy or peace or rest. That's the true sadness of it. It's as you're standing with families around a graveyard of their, uh, sitting, standing around the grave of one of their loved ones, that the, the harsh reality is, yes, there is no joy in that, at that moment. It's, it's dirt it's grass, it's a tombstone, it's a corpse, it's sad, it's hurtful. And yet, even in that, we are called to a greater perspective. Matthew gives us just such a perspective. After walking with us through Jesus's life, his works, his teaching, and his death, Matthew's gospel finally comes to its climax, which is Jesus's resurrection. Jesus' resurrection as bloody and unjust, as seemingly hopeless, as seemingly joyless as Jesus' death was, the resurrection vindicates it all. It sets all things right. As it concerns us, Matthew invites us to lift our eyes beyond the tombstones, to look above the graveyard, to look above the funeral home, to look beyond the wars and the world's brokenness, and to see how our King's resurrection has caused joy to invade this fallen world even now. There's no joy in the graveyard, but joy invades the graveyard when we lift our eyes beyond the graveyard to see the resurrection. You see, the resurrection basically proclaims that God's gonna make it all right. Whatever's broken, whatever's sad, whatever is sorrowful, all of that will come untrue someday. That which was sad will just fade away, disappear, because the resurrection being what it is means that death will be replaced with life, sorrow replaced with joy, sadness replaced with peace, fear replaced with hope. And so we look to the resurrection And today, we're not going to make all these arguments for why we know the resurrection actually happened. Instead, we're going to look at the resurrection, asking how it gives us a profound preview of what awaits us for those who trust in him. And as we will see, I believe that the empty tomb whispers to us that a new day has come in Jesus, and that we will indeed see our Savior. So that's a simple hope. Nothing profound today, other than the fact that we have a once dead, now risen Savior. So only something as profound as that, you know. So if you're looking for 10 steps for how the resurrection gives you a better life, you may not find that, but you will find that it is a profound, simple truth that we often overlook, and yet can still give us hope today. So here's what the Bible says. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, I think we sometimes forget the, concept, the context of what's going on here. You know, when we wake up on Easter morning, we tend to be very excited, right? It's, it's kind of a good day. We, we know on Good Friday what's going to happen on Sunday. We know on Good Friday that Sunday is the day that we're supposed to have joy. In fact, on Sunday morning in our house, we have Easter baskets ready, right? Full of chocolate. And all the things that remind us of the goodness of God, which means that I have a gigantic Reese's waiting for me. It's amazing. Some of you say Reese's. The correct pronunciation in my book is Reese's, okay? So there's, there's all these evidences of God's goodness on Sunday morning. This first Sunday morning, I want you to keep in mind that's not the way it was. This first Easter morning when the Marys come to the tomb, these are the same Marys who attended Jesus' burial when Joseph of Arimathea laid him to rest in his own tomb. They had, in all likelihood, witnessed very traumatic events. I mean, this was their friend, their Lord, their teacher, someone that they enjoyed close relationship with. They come to the tomb with unspeakable grief. Not unlike the grief a person undergoes when they visit the grave of a lost loved one that they lost suddenly. I mean, this is kind of the tone, the emotional tone of the text. They're not coming with anticipation. It's not as if they are coming expecting to find the tomb empty. They come expecting to find a dead Jesus still. They have no reason in their minds to hope for anything different. They had hoped... Jesus was the one who would restore Israel. Mary Magdalene had personally experienced his redemptive power. Luke 8 tells us that this is the same Mary of Magdala from whom seven demons had been cast out, which means that she has seen his power on a firsthand level. Who could cast out demons except for the Messiah? Who could do this except the Messiah? So all her walk with him in his ministry, she's thinking, no one could do this but the king. No one could do this but the Christ. This must be him. And then the unthinkable
1: happens. He dies. My friends, 2,000 years later, We don't
0: balk at the idea of a dead Messiah because we understand what that means. But in those days, and for many people still today, the idea of a crucified and buried Messiah was ridiculous, simply could not be true. The Messiah was to be a powerful, victorious military commander who would judge the unfaithful Jews and defeat the Romans. He was to be a king who would lead in victory, not in defeat. He was not supposed to die. He would cleanse the temple, reestablish Israel as a major superpower, as it deserved to be. He would subjugate the nations. Things would finally be as they were meant to be. But what are people supposed to do with a dead Messiah? I mean, instead of Having the divinely installed commander that they thought he would be, now they have only a broken and bloody corpse. Quite the disappointment. To this day, the fact that Jesus died, and not only died, but died in one of the most shameful ways on the cross, humiliated, naked, broken, mocked, is a massive stumbling block to many. I remember when we were flying to Israel, we were in the airport, and I was in line. And I uh, struck up a conversation with the lady in front of me who, as the conversation progressed, she revealed herself to be Jewish and she found out I was a Christian. And in just a few minutes span, she was telling me she could not understand how people would choose to believe in a crucified Messiah. Just doesn't make sense to her. You talk to most Orthodox Jews, and that is the key stumbling block. They don't have any problem with Jesus' life. They agree with Jesus' teaching. They even agree that the Messiah will do the kinds of works that Jesus did. The one little problem is
1: Jesus died. What do you do with the dead Messiah? We reach all the way back to the
0: second century, and archaeologists have found graffiti on on a catacomb wall with a man on the cross with a donkey's head and it says, Alexamos worships God. That's people's view of Christianity, a dead Messiah. It's just foolish. It's, it's laughable. It's mockable to think of a dead Messiah. That said, when these two Marys approach the tomb, they don't come with a sense of expectation or excitement. They approach in the same way you would if you were to go to the graveyard of your loved one and profound sadness, disappointment, confusion. If I told you that this afternoon we're going to visit the grave of your dead father, or your dead brother, or your dead child, few of us would go to the graveyard thinking and expecting to find the grave open and our loved ones standing there alive. Just imagine all the emotions that would flood in, the, the expectation that your wounds are going to be reopened, that tears are going to flow, the heartache of the memories. That's how these Mary's approach the tomb. Now, let's just drive it in even a little deeper. From a theological perspective, there are only two options that remain for these Mary's. I mean, I can just imagine not only do they not like, like, like they're just, they're sprawling from all the pain and the emotional trauma that they've gone through losing their friend and a loved one. Not only that, they no longer know who they are in relation to God. Two options exist now that Jesus is dead. A, God hasn't kept his promises. His promises have failed. B, Jesus is not the Messiah. Those are the only two options with a dead Jesus at this point. This is is what's going on in their minds. They're not anticipating that they're going to get to the tomb and find God's promises fulfilled. They are going to the tomb in their minds confused. God promised to give us a king, a savior, someone to deliver us from our sins, and yet he's dead. What do we do with that? Either Jesus isn't who he said he was, or God isn't
1: who he said he was. God didn't do what he said he would do. I point this out
0: because there's a lot of us that have experienced grief in that kind of way, and those tend to be the options that we think through. God isn't who he said he was. God didn't do what he said he would do. He failed me in somehow, Or Jesus isn't who he said he is. That's very normal to go through when we, when we lose loved ones, to, to have those kind of thoughts. So it's just as we, as we approach this text, we, we sit in the deep darkness of a dead Messiah. That's the context of this resurrection text. We don't come in verse 1 expecting, if you were reading this for the first time ever, you're not reading it expecting to find a living Savior by the end of this chapter. You're reading
1: this delving into the deep, dark dreads of a dead Savior. My friends, it's in that context of that deep,
0: dark, dead Messiah. Messiah. That we suddenly experience the transformation from tragedy into triumph, from sorrow into joy, from catastrophe into eucatastrophe. In his writings, J.R. Tolkien coined the phrase eucatastrophe. It hadn't been used much before, um, and he wanted a word to express this idea of a sudden, unexpected change from pain to relief, from grief to joy, from death to life. I mean, we we see it in all the Disney movies, the little princess movies, right? So Snow White, uh, I hope I get this right. Abigail, correct me if I'm wrong, okay? I'm relying on you. Uh, Snow White bites the apple, right? And she dies, and that's a catastrophe, right? It's a sudden, painful, tragic reality. But then what happens? In comes the prince. He kisses Snow White and she raises from the dead. That's a you catastrophe. Unexpected. When you're watching the movie Snow White, and I have more than I have cared to watch Snow White. Um, you, when I first watched Snow White, I didn't—I didn't know how. I honestly, you know, it wasn't like I was raised watching Snow White through my childhood. So i have sitting with my daughter for the well, in, in real time watching this unfold. Now I knew some of the basics of the story, but I didn't know how things would go about. Well, when the prince starts riding up, I think he rides. Does he ride on a horse, Abigail? He either rides or walks. She says he rides. So he rides up, and suddenly you're thinking, where did he come from? That's the U catastrophe. This is sudden, unexpected breaking in of a deliverance or salvation. Some of you have undergone catastrophe. Just like that, life has changed. The one you are making plans around your future with is dead. You retire and you're looking forward to finally traveling with your spouse, but then boom, in comes the nasty diagnosis that you have heart
1: problems and maybe two years. Those are all catastrophes. But, praise God, we also have you catastrophes.
0: Tolkien described it as imagine if your arm popped out of joint and it hurts and you can't move it and then suddenly snaps back into place and your arm functions again. That's how the resurrection works. When we come to the tomb on that first Sunday morning, something's out of place, a dead Messiah. Really? The one we thought we would be, that he would be King and he would fix it all. But then suddenly snaps back into place. Tolkien, said that the resurrection was the greatest catastrophe in existence. He said that when we experience such catastrophes, it's like a catch of the breath. Wow. It's like a, a beating and a lifting up of the heart. It's that, it's that moment. I, and again, I don't know if you've read Lord of the Rings. You should read it before you watch it. But it's that moment when... Everybody's going to die. The orcs are coming in. Everybody's going to be slaughtered. And then you hear just in this distant memory, Gandalf saying, on the third day, look to the east. And next thing you know, Aragorn's looking to the east, and boom, there's Gandalf with a massive army. And suddenly, this seeming catastrophe turns into a great and glorious victory. My friends, that is the whole Christian life for us. That is what God does for us. Matthew does this in an amazing way. He loves this word, behold, behold. He says it like four times in the text, right? It's kind of an archaic word, but in the biblical, in both biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew, anytime you see the word behold, it's not expected. It's this, their way, their literary way of telling something that's happened that was completely unforeseen. Jesus was dead, and behold, he's dead no longer. (laughs) That's kind of the, the way it works with this word, behold. There was sadness and weeping in the night. The Marys came with tragedy deep in their hearts, and then, boom, behold, there's an angel sitting on a stone, and the tomb is empty, just amazing joy breaking into this present sadness All things were happening as Jesus said they would, how God had planned, and yet these disciples had failed to see it. God was working. Matthew's gospel tells us of the sudden intervention of God to bring redemption to fruition. All sad stories change into happy endings only when God's hand moves to make it so. And what a gracious God he is. I don't want to lessen our tragedies. Our tragedies are deep and hurtful. But we live and we mourn as people who have hope. People who knew that God has sent his son, allowed him to endure the greatest tragedy, dying as a perfect savior and raises his own son to bring us eternal life, joy, and peace. So let's just look a little deeper at some of these catastrophes that we have. The first catastrophe is the rolling away of the stone. Here's what we see. And behold, okay, again, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. So here's what this eucatastrophe teaches us. First and foremost, this sudden unexpected earthquake and the rolling away of the stone teaches us the powerful reality that death can not hold Jesus. My man, every other person in the world, they die and they can do nothing. There's nothing you can do. There's a, there's an exasperation of our incompetence to bring people back
1: to life. We just can't. Death is too strong. but Jesus is stronger than death. When the angel rolled away the
0: stone, it was not to let Jesus out of the grave. I want you to to understand this. When we do all of our passion plays, oftentimes we, we have the angels stomp up onto the stage, right? And then he rolls away the stone and then Jesus walks out. My friends, the way that Matthew talks about it, Jesus ain't in that tomb. When the stone's rolled away, it's not to let Jesus out. It's to prove to everybody else he's not in there. The grave could not hold Jesus. Let's just say that the angel never showed up. Maybe he missed the appointment. Okay. And the stone was still there. The stone's not big enough to hold Jesus. The tomb was empty that morning. Death had been defeated that morning. Why the rolling away of the stone to give you the peace, to give you the knowledge that there is no body in there. There's two places they've narrowed down that could be potentially the, the, The tomb, we don't know which one they are. There's one that looks really cool, and I hope it is the tomb. There's the other one that's not so cool looking, but could be the tomb. Here's the reality. If archaeologists are correct that these are the only two tombs that fit the description,
1: guess what? They're both empty. There's no bodies there. The tomb is empty.
0: The stone is rolled away so that women could see with their own eyes that the tomb was empty empty and that Jesus was beyond any doubt, the risen savior. Can you imagine just the amazingness of that? Can you imagine just walking up to the graveyard for someone that you love to visit the tomb, to weep and cry? I imagine they had, they had lots of plans for that morning, maybe to anoint the stone with some uh, Jewish made oil, just as a, as a sacrifice of mourning and grief, who knows whatever it was. Maybe it was to go and to pray at the, at the graveyard and to lament. But then they get there and they hear this amazing message. He is not here. He's not here. For he is risen, as he said. Jesus had told his disciples the plan numerous times. He would suffer, die, and then raise again. Now, if somebody else told you that, we'd think they were crazy. But Jesus said that he would suffer, die, and raise again. The rolled away stone vindicates his words as true. Death simply cannot hold the king. Listen to Peter in Acts chapter two. Peter, after the resurrection, Peter, who denied Jesus during his crucifixion, Peter, who ran away and fled and wept because he had abandoned his friend, Peter, after the resurrection, this Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Why? Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What profound theology is that? We have a Savior, we have a Messiah, we have a King. That is impossible for death to hold him. Three days is what death can handle. And then death must spit him out of its mouth. It's amazing to think of how strong our Messiah is. It's impossible for death to defeat our Savior. Now, if death can't defeat our Savior, then can death defeat any of the promises he's given us? I, mean, I just want you to understand, death is not some enemy at tug of war with Jesus. If anything, death is Jesus' pet dog that must obey his every living command. He has ownership over it. He's defeated it. He's broken it. The amazing sight of death here is only there to display the power of Jesus. Yes, he took the consequences of our sins. Yes, he took the punishment and the wrath of God. But if anything else, death is put up here to be an enemy that is embarrassingly defeated. Jesus said beforehand in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. No one kills me. But I lay it down of my own accord. Then he said profoundly, I have authority to lay it down. And then I have authority to take it up again. My friends, what a profound thing that stone rolled away tells us. Jesus is not there because death is simply not strong enough to hold him. Second, this eucatastrophe reminds us that Jesus' resurrection is leading to a great reversal. There are a number of ironies in Matthew's account. For one thing, the guards who were sent to guard the dead, Jesus, become like dead men themselves. You get these strong strapping guards that are Standing before the tomb, guarding it, and they fall in fear. And the women are the ones that are told, Do not be afraid. Amazing reversals happening, ironies happening. For Matthew to record that women were the first ones to see the empty tomb, attests, I think, to the non fictional nature of Matthew's writing. You see, back in those days, ladies, don't throw any shoes at me because it is not, I wasn't around. I wasn't there. But in those days, in that culture, uh, you didn't believe the testimony of women. So if a woman saw a crime and they were the only ones to see it, it didn't hold up in court. Throw a stone at Pilate, not at me. Um, but that's just the reality. Matthew, however, doesn't balk. He writes that it was women who found the tomb first. Which I think, if he's writing a fictitious story, anyone that knows their own culture isn't going to write that. He wrote it as it happened. It was women, traumatized women, broken women, hurting women, women that had a
1: past that found the empty tomb and found joy first. Who were the
0: first people? to taste and see the goodness of resurrection. It wasn't the hypocritical Pharisees, these elite, you know, religious, got it together people. It wasn't even Peter who got a taste of the joy first.
1: It was a formerly demon-possessed prostitute
0: who got the first taste of resurrection joy.
1: I mean, at the tomb,
0: we see what Jesus said, the first will be last and the last will be first. Mary Magdalene deserves to be last, and yet she's the first to taste resurrection joy. Great reversals coming. And with it, death, sorrow, loss, catastrophe will turn backwards and give way to life, joy, and resurrection. The crucified one is now the risen one, death has been defeated. The mocking taunts have been silenced. The cold stone rolled away and sorrow has been overcome. Now, if that was all that there was, that'd be more than enough reason to worship Jesus as the king. But Matthew decides to write a little bit more. He doesn't just want you to know that there was an angel sitting on a tomb and that there was an empty tomb, okay? He wants you to understand that these women saw Jesus himself. This is the second catastrophe. It'd be enough to see this big, amazing angel sitting on a stone proclaiming the Lord's resurrection, but he wants you to read of the res- resurrected Messiah himself. So they're departing. They're running in fear and joy. And then Matthew writes this Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and touched his feet and worshiped him. So here they finally see the object of their hope. They see Jesus. It's no metaphorical, metaphysical, spiritual resurrection. This is a true resurrection, a physical, bodily resurrection. And that matters for many reasons. And we'll talk about why it matters here in a minute. But what are the first things that we hear G- out of Jesus's mouth? This is the first time that we read of a resurrected Messiah in Matthew. What does he say? You know, if I'm, if I'm a writer, I'm thinking, okay, this is the glorified Jesus who has just broken out of the tomb. All of his enemies are embarrassed, right? If I were writing a fictional story, I might have had him marching into Pilate's house saying, told you so, right? Or or marching off to Caiaphas's house and saying, hand over the robes, dude, you know, or something. At the very minimum, I think I would have created something a little more profound for him to say. I mean, this is the resurrected Messiah. Like, surely the first words out of his mouth can be, Blessings from heaven upon thee, women. Right? That's what you, you would
1: expect.
0: But when you read the Greek, kairos, which means greetings, which in our vernacular just means, hello. I think that is a massively underwhelming way to greet someone after you've risen from the grave. I, and, and, you know, you know, you guys have known me long enough to know that my mind goes in various directions, and typically the strangest of directions. But, but while I was while I was studying for this text, I just I, why greet them that way, Jesus? Why hello? You know, I, I just think that's that's so common, so familiar. Like I, I want the theologically profound Jesus, right? I want him coming out like speaking like amazingly theological truths to these ladies. And all he says is, hello. But I think it does teach us something theologically. As mundane as the greeting may be, guess what?
1: This is their same friend that they've always had. He's not a different Jesus.
0: You know, before the resurrection, they might've ran into Jesus in the marketplace and Jesus would've said, hello, Mary. Mary. I can just imagine there's this friendly greeting. That's this when you say hello to someone in that that context, it's just this friendly greeting. Just greeting her like a everyday friend. Hello. Here he is, post-cross, post-resurrection.
1: Hello, Marys. Just as normal as if nothing had ever happened. I think it's instructional
0: for us. Do you sometimes act like me? And and there's there's days that I'll read of a very human, normal Jesus who's friendly, eating with sinners, you know, uh, being gracious toward Peter, saying hello after he's raised from the grave, and think he's someone different to me now that he's exalted. Like now he's some profound, exalted, can't relate to me kind of Jesus, right? I think the whole Bible wants you to understand, yes, he's exalted, yes, he's holy, yes, he's glorified. The resurrection proves him to be the king that he said that he was, and yet he's the very same friend of sinners Jesus he's always been.
1: I mean, I just think we, when we think of Jesus, sometimes we, we, we make him
0: look like a pope, right? We, we, we exalt
1: him so much that he's just so high and transcendent that he just can't be our friend. My friends, I,
0: I, we, we say a lot sometimes when we imagine what it will be like to enter into the presence of Jesus. You know, I've heard a lot of people, I can't, can't wait. I can't wait to hear what he's going to say to me. You know what I think he's going to say to you? Hello. Good to see you come on in. Enter into our friendship.
1: I, Jesus is our friend. He was a friend of sinners before he died. He was a
0: friend of sinners on the cross. And he's a friend of formerly possessed prostitute, Mary Magdala, after his resurrection. If anything, the resurrection would have said, I don't have to be friends with those people anymore. I'm so exalted now. I can be friends with people in higher places now. But he's the same Jesus giving a very friendly, conventional, common greeting to these Marys. Now, to me, that's not the most important point in the text, but it's profound. I, I am stirred up to worship a Jesus who puts his arm around my shoulder I'm stirred up to worship a Jesus who greets me like a friend. I mean, just the thoughts of I'm going to be reclining at a table
1: with him, eating with him, Lord willing, drinking coffee with him. We have a friend that is our Savior, that's who He is. My friends, he loves
0: you. He hasn't changed. The resurrection never changed his nature towards sinners. He greets Mary in the very same way, not to overdo the point, but my goodness, do not change Jesus's nature. If the resurrection did not change Jesus's nature as the friend of sinners, then neither did his ascension. At this moment on the throne, reigning at the right hand of God, Jesus is still the friend of formerly demon-possessed prostitutes like Mary. He's a friend of drug addicts. He's a friend of adulterers.
1: He's a friend of broken, greedy gossipers.
0: He's a friend of you. He has not changed. Now, Matthew's careful to write that when they approach him, they even touch his feet. Now, why does Matthew care that they touched him? Well, in the Gospels, touching Jesus is added proof that Jesus had physically risen from the grave. Luke 24, 39, Jesus tells his disciples, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Well, these women move, they touch his feet, and then they worship him. They touch his feet. Let me say it again. The once dead Jesus, they touch him. That may not be that profound to you, but in 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, the disciples couldn't go over the, get over the fact that this was the same Jesus that they had looked upon and touched with our hands. He's alive.
1: Not metaphysically, not metaphorically, not spiritually, physically living king who they touched. A tangible king. Now, why does that matter? I think it matters because it sets the tone for our own resurrection as well.
0: If Jesus didn't physically rise from the grave, then we have no hope for a physical resurrection. But as it is, Romans 6, 5 tells us, for if we have been united with him in the death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. My friend, the fact that Jesus burst open from the grave and walks, and can be touched, means that you and your loved ones that have trusted in Jesus will be resurrected in glory just as he is. He gives us a glimpse. He sets the model. He shows us. He gives us the, this is the preview. You want to know what the resurrection of the last day will look like? Look at Jesus, because it'll be just like that. He sets the tone for our hope, but then they worship him. Why? Well, this is the risen, resurrected Jesus. Why not? It makes sense that he deserves to be worshiped. Jesus then repeats the angel's words and says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. Now we're going to deal next week with Galilee because that's where the great commission's given. We're going to talk about why Galilee is important because back then Galilee was not that important. So why go to Galilee? Galilee and see the disciples? Why not appear on the temple mount, right? Why not go back to the tomb? Why not go to the place where they had the Passover supper? Why go to Galilee? We'll deal with all that next week. But I do want you to think of the beautiful news. He tells these Marys, tell them to go to Galilee, and there
1: they will see me. My friends, that's amazing. Can I just tell you some good news? you will see Jesus. You will see Jesus. That's what the
0: resurrection means for us. It's not like he's resurrected now, inaccessible. We won't see him. We won't have a relationship with him. We won't get to be with him. No, the resurrection means that we will have a real relationship in every
1: sense of the word. That we will be with him. We will see him.
0: Touch him, hear him, see him. I mean, all of that's a reality for us in the future. I mean, we get so bored by that kind of thought. We don't think about it that often, but can, I, can, I, can, I just, can you just imagine if Jesus were to show up and walk in the middle of the room and you could see him, you could go shake his hand, you could hug him, you could speak with him. My friends, that is what awaits every single believer.
1: He goes ahead, and there we will see him. May sound crazy to the rest of the world, but that's the truth, and
0: that's the hope. And at the end of the day, that's what all of our hopes rest on. And what is good news to some is problematic to others. The women leave the scene in fear and joy. The guards leave in fear only. And they go and they tell the chief priests and the chief priests know this is problematic. Well, now there's no Jesus in the tomb. What do we do with this? So they gather up just like Psalm 2. You know, they gather up, they take counsel together and they concoct this scheme. Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, there's lots of problems with that off the floor. First off, if you're asleep, how do you know it was the disciples that stole him? right? I can't make an accusation of who ate the cookie on the bar if I was asleep, taking a nap on the couch, right? I'm, I'm not a faithful eyewitness. If I was asleep and then someone did something else, well, that's what they're saying. While we were asleep, while we were unconscious, somebody else stole his body. The disciples did. There's lots of problems from the get-go with what they say. Now, the, the interesting thing is Matthew doesn't engage in this conspiracy story much, He doesn't give us the 10 ways that we can now battle and combat, apologetically, this story. That's not his concern. The issue isn't that the world is prone to making false stories about Jesus' resurrection. The issue is is that the world doesn't want to believe it. My friends, 2,000 years later, there have been an infinite number of stories infinite number of conspiracy theories. The swoon theory just didn't really die on the cross, but fainted. And they buried a still alive man who just fainted. The wrong tomb theory. In other words, the women were so delusional that they came across an empty tomb and thought it was Jesus's. And then we have the mass hallucination theory that 500 people in their deep grief all believed the same lie. My friends, we could, we could spend every Sunday, one by one, combating each of these different conspiracy theories. Guess what? Even if we could definitively disprove each one, which we have many, many, many times over, the world would create another, a thousand new ones in its place. It's like the, the hydra in, in the Greek. You cut off one of its heads and a hundred more come out. Here's the issue. It's not that these conspiracy theories are that important. It's the fact that human, the human heart is so resilient in its unbelief. My friends, when you speak of the resurrection, when you think of the resurrection, the only hope anyone has in accepting and believing the resurrection is the eye-opening, heart-changing grace of God. If you believe in the resurrection today, that is hands-down proof that God has broken your heart to see truth that many, many others cannot.
1: So that's the resurrection. Let's just go briefly back to the graveyard though. Where your loved one sits. Let's go back to the tombstones and
0: the broken fractured world. We've said a lot about the resurrection and that's great. A lot of us, I don't think any of us in here would say that the resurrection doesn't matter or that it's not important or anything like that, but there is this, still this issue like what does this have to do with me today? Well, I think that the resurrection confronts both our sorrow and our affections. In his allegorical story, the great divorce C S Lewis writes of eternity. Some mortals say of temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once obtained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasures, they say, let me have but this, and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of sin. Now, Jesus Lewis is writing about heaven and hell, but I think everything he says in that little passage applies to the resurrection. There, sometimes we look at our sufferings, and we think no future blessing could ever fix this. You know, you, you, you think of a, a mom who has miscarried to think of the resurrection, there, there's, there's, there's moments where it just doesn't, there's, it doesn't feel like anything in the future could ever make that better. What could ever make the divorce feel better? What could ever make the job loss feel better? What could ever make the lost loved one feel better? What could take it away? My friends, when we see our resurrected Savior and in due course receive a resurrection of our own, every sorrow will fade.
1: Your deep, dark, cold tragedy
0: will not be so deep and dark, will not be deep and dark at all when the resurrection has the final word. I just think of how amazing it will be when Jesus returns and we go to the graveyard And we don't go expecting to visit. We don't go expecting to cry. We go expecting to give physical hugs to laugh again with those that we haven't laughed with in years. Just how amazing it will be to see my little
1: brother climbing out of a grave to come play bowl with me. I mean, that's our hope. The resurrection instills us with a hope
0: that even this deep, dark tragedy will not be deep and dark forever because our God is the one who opens tombs. And he started it off by opening the tomb of his own son to give us a glimpse of what still awaits us. Now, in addition to salting our sorrow with joy, the resurrection also confronts our sin. So there's an other side of that. We look at the resurrection, we think of joy, joy, joy. But I think we should also look at the resurrection and consider what is it that we love? We are oftentimes tempted into thinking that this life, what we see, feel, touch, taste, etc., is all that there is. And, and I, I'll tell you this, if this life is all that there is, Paul said that if the resurrection isn't true, then we are to be the most pitied. Why? Because we are depriving ourselves of certain pleasures that the rest of the world is having, knowing that there's a resurrection to come. Why not sleep with that other woman that you know you just think is amazing? Why not embezzle the money and buy yourself a yacht? Why not just... Do anything. Why keep yourself back from anything? Anything sexual, material, financial, entertaining, pleasure. Why keep yourself back? Without the resurrection, there's no answer to that. Why not? Might as well. But the resurrection reminds us that this life is not all that there is. What we can see, touch, taste right now is not all that there is. But there's a living Savior that we will see and touch. There's a new life still to come. And because this is true, we must think carefully about what receives our greatest affections. My friends, because the resurrection is true, you are invited to drink of that which is truly sweet. All these old sins in light of the resurrection will one day prove to be dry and dull and poisonous compared to the joy of the resurrection to come. That's why we live. That's why we trust in Jesus. My friends, Jesus is the first fruit, the first installment of the new age to come. So what we see in Matthew 28
1: is what we see of our own future. And for that, we have lots of reason to worship.